Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. A few weeks ago, I shared with you uh, a reality that I live in, and it's this, it's my greatest joy, and it's also my greatest challenge. For years, I, when anybody ever asked me that, I always had two different answers. I'd have, these are my greatest joys, and these are my greatest challenge. But recently, I've been noticing it's the same thing. Uh, I had this um, immense purpose to love and care, pastor, and equip and teach people that have said yes to Jesus. It's, it's what wakes me up in many ways, not just my own following Jesus, but to, to do my part in the conversation and each of your lives, whether you want to listen to me or not, that doesn't matter to me, but the ones that are engaged, I want to care for you, I want to teach, I want to pastor, and I want to equip you to follow Jesus more than you've ever dreamed of. And that's, that's my part in your life, at least at a minimum. And at the same time, I, I, what rung alongside that immense desire is I had this insanely deep desire to reach and touch humanity. It's, um, it keeps me up, and I shared that a few weeks ago. It, it, um, I don't want to say it drives me crazy in a negative sense, but it does drive me crazy. I had this insane desire to actually look for ways to strategically touch humanity and reach humanity. I want to, I want to see people uh, experience a God that, that I know personally. Not a God that my parents knew, not a God that you know, but a God that I have known. And I remember, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a home that was very traditional, very conservative, and very Christian. But it wasn't until that my later teen years that I move out of serving my parents' faith and have my own personal moment. And it wasn't specifically a moment. It was a season of where I felt like I left the umbrella of running after God because that was the faith I was raised in. But it became very personal and very real. So I have this deep desire to see a part of humanity to either had a damaged or a shallow view of God, which is also known as church hurt all the way to individuals that have no construct or no framework of God. And to try to do that in the same space is very tricky. It's very tricky. And it's, uh, it's something that I want to take a moment to thank each and every one of you that have been a part of Studio in any measure. Thank you for being a part of this journey of, of this tension between my personal greatest joy and also the greatest challenge and that's where I'm excited about what's happening here and what's building here and what's taking place. You know, I'm intrigued by what humans determine, determine a normal expectations of life and the normal experience, whether it's a fatalistic worldview or it's a free will worldview. And sometimes we vacillate back and forth between a fatalistic worldview or to a free will worldview. We love free will until things are out of our control. And then we want it to be fatalistic. And this is just what it means to be human. We're vacillating back and forth between these two realities. And I find it interesting to hear that people that have said yes to Jesus, that there's no expectation that your life would be different than someone that does not have God in their life. 
It's actually quite sad. It's actually shocking that for people that have said yes to Jesus, they have the Spirit of God living inside you. At least an awareness of that's what the Bible says is happening. Whether you know it or not, that's a whole nother conversation. But it's amazing to me that individuals that have said yes to Jesus and at minimum are aware of the Spirit of God living in us have no different expectations on the outcome of life than someone that has no idea who God is. And so we have to ask the question, what should we expect when we say yes to Jesus? What should we actually get up and rightfully be able to expect? Now, there's a difference between expectation and expectancy. Expectation is your timeline and your faith is connected to your timeline of when things should happen. But expectancy is having faith that God wins in the end. And so this is a conversation I want to have today. And what's interesting to me is I, I, I'm increasingly running into people that the primary reason or even primary goal or standard that we've set in our life is just get to heaven. For many, and all over the world, this isn't just unique to this geographical location. This is a normal human experience that said yes to Jesus, that sometimes we reduce our entire expectancy of our walk with God to a space that my goal is just to get to heaven. And I want to elevate that today. I want to continue to elevate your expectancy. Maybe not expectation, but definitely expectancy. You know, for nearly 20 years, I have personally dedicated my life, to be honest with myself, but to anybody that's willing to listen, to expand our thinking of what it means to follow God. To expand our thinking of what's actually possible when you say yes to God. I, I have no interest in reducing our worldview. I have no interest in reducing our view of what's actually possible. I believe when you come into the realization of the nature and the goodness and the infinite of who God is, your mind is unlocked. At least it should be. And I have no goal is to reduce your thinking down to minutia. My goal is to actually expand your thinking of what's actually possible because God lives in you. That's my goal. And if, you're, if you want a, a something else, then... I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and I, I, wanna, I want to expand because we've compartmentalized Jesus to a Sunday. And we've treated church as a check off the list of what I've done this week. And I, don't, I don't question why people are bored in their faith. Because when you reduce Jesus, when you reduce God down to, I'm just trying to get to heaven, you're going to get bored very quickly. And the only way to keep yourself motivated is to be scared of going to hell. So this is why some of us really enjoy preachers that remind you you're going to hell. And we get fired up about these preachers. We quote them, we get their t-shirts, and there's a space for that. There really is a space for that. But if you said yes to Jesus, your motivation for following God should not be because of fear of going to hell. So I want to just break some news to each and every one of us. If you've reduced God down to that, I know why you're bored. I know why you're asking questions that will never have an answer to it. 
because you've reduced this infinite, expansive creator of the universe who is beautiful and good, you've reduced them down to a ticket. So if you're bored, if you're, if you're lost, if you're in a conundrum, in a quandary of life, of trying to figure out why you're alive, potentially it's because you've reduced yourself down to the bare minimum, the basics of our faith. So today I want to elevate the reality of our faith in each and every one of you, whether you've known Jesus your entire life or you met him this morning. Whatever it may be, I want to continue to elevate, and I will dedicate my life to that. Have you ever noticed just because you believe in God, it doesn't mean you change? I think we have this notion or this, this idea that if I put my faith in God, everything changes. That's not actually true. There are lots of people that believe in God, but nothing changes. Now, if you have a fatalistic worldview, your expectation is as soon as I say yes to God, he changes everything. There's something else called choice. You have to choose to change. Now, some of you, this might be a real light bulb going off. There's some deer in the headlight looks in here like, oh, I didn't realize that. I'm telling you today that just because you believe in God, it doesn't mean you actually will change. It just means you believe in God. So I want to challenge you today. Your faith in God actually requires you to make a choice to change. Actually requires you to make hard decisions. And maybe not even hard ones, just different decisions. So I want to do a, um, a broad stroke today. And I'm going to ask you to go on a journey with me. I'm going to read a couple quotes to you from a woman named Dorothy Sayers. She said, how can anyone remain interested in religion which seem to have no concern with nine-tenths of their life. She also said this, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. The apostles complained rightly when they said it was not good that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation is to prepare the meal beautifully might with equal justice protest. It is not good for us to leave the service of our table, tables to preach the word. You see, all of the church is in the kingdom, but not all of the kingdom is in the church. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's a phrase, the time is fulfilled. What is Jesus saying? He steps onto the scene. What he is essentially saying that everything that has happened until this moment in time is fulfilled. He's putting a period on it and he's saying, I am introducing what we would classic, classically know as the new covenant or the new testament. So when Jesus said the time was fulfilled, he's saying we are ending everything that's happened to this point and now something new has happened. So another way to look at scripture is this. The Old Testament is the promise of restoration of all things. The New Testament is the inauguration of this restoration. Some of you need to write this down. When you look at the Old Testament, when you read it, it is a promise of the restoration to come. 
But the moment you flip open Matthew and read the rest of the Bible, it's the inauguration of the restoration of all things. And Jesus initiates that. Now, what's interesting about when Jesus spoke about the kingdom, he used different words like this. He said near, present, delayed, and future. So you might ask, well, what is the kingdom? What is heaven? Jesus uses several different words to describe it. Near, present, delayed, and future. In Matthew 3, 2, we read, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But by the time you get to Matthew 10, verse 7, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same statement, but there's a reality going on behind this. John the Baptist considered the greatest prophet of all of the Old Testament. And John makes this statement, John the Baptist, if you're unfamiliar with scripture, there's one moment he said, I must decrease so Jesus may increase. Now, we have taken that on that I must decrease so God increases in my life. And there's a principle in that that is scripturally, but that's actually not what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying, I am the period of what's happened behind me. And Jesus is the new story. I want you to understand this because John the Baptist was the prophet, the greatest prophet of the old covenant. And he said, I must end so Jesus can begin. He's not talking about a Christian character building concept. He's actually talking about two completely different seasons in all of existence. And John says, repent, the kingdom is right here. And literally a couple verses later, Jesus walked into the river and John baptizes him. And then a few chapters later, Jesus comes out after he come tempted in the wilderness. He comes out and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the time you get to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, there's some beautiful verses in verse 5 and 6 that say this, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together, and made us seated in the heavenly places. So there's three scripture verses I read you talk about heaven, heaven, and heavenly places. So in reality, you and I are connected to the eternal realm more than we realize right now. Your connection to eternity is active and alive in this moment. Now let's ask the question, where where is heaven? Where is it? Like, what is it? I love phrases, no, I talked to the man upstairs. A lot of country songs have that phrase in it. About this man upstairs and... For the Christian faith, we understand the word heaven as the destination somewhere. But it's also a reference to another reality, another dimension. So where is heaven? Uh, we talk about, our, we always point up. Well, the reality is if you point up, you can point down. Hell's down, so we don't like pointing down. But in reality, if heaven's out there somewhere, you can point this way and it'll go through earth and it'll continue out there. So where's heaven? You see, humanity, we have this thing called a spatial threshold. I grew up in a small town of 3,000 people. And it took you roughly three to four minutes to get from one side of the little town to the other side. So my threshold of driving was five minutes. If you lived outside of that five minutes, it was like a day trip. Like, I got to pack something. I got to put something together so I can get to you. 
But if you live within five minutes, it was good. I mean, we, it was so bad that sometimes four minutes to the grocery store, like, I don't have time for that. That's just too, too far away. So I moved from the small town, and then I, after high school, I moved to Mexico. And we were going to San Diego multiple times a week. And it would be one to two hours, one way, just to get to San Diego to pick up supplies and do errands and whatnot. And it was amazing how my five minutes became two hours. Like if it's three hours, I can't do it, it's just too far. But two, I'm good, I'll be there, I'll see you in a couple hours. Going to the store, going to pick up supplies, two hours, not a problem, no big deal. She we all adjust to the environment of what we're aware of. And then I went from there to college, and then I eventually ended up back in Redding, California. Now, Redding is not five-minute threshold. It's more around 15-minute threshold. So we bought our house. When we were buying our last house that before we sold, before we came here, we're like, any house that's within 15 minutes, 20 minutes was too far. 20 minutes, it's just way too much time to drive. So we literally found our house that was literally 15 minutes from where we spent most of our time at church. So our entire life was within a 15-minute circumference of each other. Our life, our shopping, our activities, all our friends, all that was within 15 minutes. And if you had to drive 20, 30 minutes, it was like, I can't come. I'm so sorry. I don't have time for that. And then I moved to Greenville. And in Greenville, my spatial threshold is now easily 30, 40 minutes. Easily. Like... We joke, because in Reading, there's a city called Red Bluff that's 30 to 40 minutes south of, of Reading. Here, we're like, I'm going to Red Bluff two times today. <laughs> because my spatial threshold adjusts to what you're aware of. You see, what you're aware of actually determines the farthest reach of what's possible. So where is heaven? What's interesting, when you study the actual idea of heaven, it's actually gone through several, numerous, not just several, but numerous locales in the expanse of the universe. We know in scripture where Jesus in the end of the gospel, he gives the great commission, which is preach the gospel, go into all the world, and then he ascends. And the, the Bible says he disappears in the clouds. So one of the earliest concepts of heaven was, oh, it's in the clouds. So this is why we got these cute little books out that are about heaven and angels sitting in clouds. And I don't know about you, but that does not sound like where I want to spend eternity. <laughs> sitting in clouds. I mean, it's cool for a while, but after you've flown in a plane for a bit, it's like, okay, can we move on to something else? But that was the, that was the locale of heaven for a long time was this, oh, it's in the clouds. And then by the time you got to, there's so much information on this, so bear with me, but by the time you got to like the 17th century, when the emergence of a telescope and as the telescope came on the scene, you have Copernicus and Galileo who completely disrupted the worldview of space. And the primary core thing that disrupted our entire view of existence of what's out there was that nothing is revolving around the earth. Everything is revolving around the sun. So much so that Galileo was actually put on house arrest and was considered a heretic, and he died in his home as a heretic. And as he was going to be killed, he said this, the earth still moves. I've shared this before, but I think it's awesome. His middle finger can be found in a museum in Italy.
You see, we as Christians need a material heaven. Aristotle's view of the universe with its outermost fear of the star gave Christian the conceptual framework to locate heaven on a map. But up until Copernicus, Copernicus and Galileo, the view of the entire solar system with everything revolved around the earth until the new cosmology of Copernicus and Galileo placed the sun rather than the earth in the center of the universe. This transformation from an earth-centered to a sun-centered universe did not simply displace earth, it destroyed heaven as the place within the cosmos. So by the 17th century, in the wake of revelations of the telescope, consensus over the, the location of heaven was gone. The new astronomy of Copernicus and Galileo ultimately fractured ideas about this Empyrean heaven and gave rise to the widely different assumption regarding its location or even its existence. Eventually, as a more detailed understanding of the starry realm developed, the Empyrean heaven was displaced completely. By the end of the 18th century, a Catholic dictionary of theology could dismiss speculation about the physical location of heaven. It should be the object of our desires and of our hopes and not of our speculations. The airy heaven became the atmosphere, a term first coined by 16th and 17th century astronomers. The celestial heaven became space, the Empyrean heaven, the heaven of heaven, and the dwelling place of God disappeared from the universe. I like to add, it doesn't mean it actually disappeared. It just means it disappeared from our framework from our view of our spatial threshold. So what's interesting about this is all of these developments in astronomy caused many thinkers and theologians to move away from heaven being a central tenet of our faith and to return to what contemporary theologians such as N.T. Wright consider a view closer to the original Christianity Salvation not as an escape to a heaven beyond the universe, but a stranger, more radical hope of renewal and recreation of this one. So the journey of where heaven is located, you got Copernicus, you got early biblical accounts, you got Aristotle, you got Plato, you got Galileo, you got Basil. It went from the clouds to the stars to the outer stars, and now no one knows where it is. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just we have no idea where it is. And what I think this is important for us to grasp, many of us are trying to figure out where is heaven and how to get to it. And N.T. Wright put it beautifully, said that has never been one of the core tenets of our faith. One of the core tenets of our faith has been the restoration of all things. Instead of living to heaven, you start living with heaven to earth. So we have to ask a few more questions. Are you guys still with me? I'm going to ask a few more questions. So we have to ask, what happened? How do we get here? How do we get to this place where we've reduced God down to just getting to heaven? How do we get to this place? It actually took place roughly in the 1800s. From the beginning of when Jesus came all the way to about 2,000 years, when you looked at a biblical worldview, this would be the four chapters or four sections of a biblical worldview. It was creation, it was fall, it was redemption, and it was the future of the restoration of all things. 
That was a normal view of God's plan on earth, was creation, the fall, redemption, and the future and the restoration of all things. But something happened where the only thing we like to talk about in modern day church is fall and redemption. You're a sinner, you need to get saved. What happened to the front end of the story and what happened to the latter end of the story? Something happened in the 1800s where a group of German liberal theologians began to attack the core tenets of the fundamental Christian faith. And in response to that, different theologians rose up in the wake of this theological attack and they said things like this. They said the, uh, the Bible is filled with errors and it's not God's word. People are not fundamentally sinful, but are good. The bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. It was symbolic and it was an illusion. And that Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. So they attacked the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. And as a result of that, theologians rose up, rose up and they responded with documents and white papers and speeches and you could get the picture. And that is what we now call fundamentalism. Some of you are familiar with this, but fundamentalism came out of a response to an attack by liberal theologians. Now the challenge is they were responding to specific points of being attacked. And as a result of that, at the turn of the 1900, church at large with Pentecostalism and evangelicalism would birth out of fundamentalism. Stay with me for a second here. What do the main topics that you run into in any type of evangelical church or Pentecostal church? You're a sinner, you need to get saved. You're a sinner, you need to get saved. And we're going to remind you over and over. Now, is that wrong? Is that bad? Absolutely not. There's so much truth to that. But if that's the entire story, we're missing the beginning and we're missing the end. We're missing the beauty in Genesis 1 where God created the heavens and the earth. It was good. It was beautiful. It was mesmerizing. It was astonishing. It was extraordinary. And then sin came in. And then guess what? Jesus showed up and redeems humanity, creates a way for humanity to be redeemed. But it doesn't end there. No wonder why we're so bored. We're just sitting there waiting to go to heaven. We forget the restoration of all things falls on us. We have a part in the story. You want free will? Amen at this. Make the world a better place. Bring beauty to it. Bring life to it. Bring hope to it. But instead, we stay focused on just trying to make sure my plate is clean and I make it to heaven. So this creates a significant challenge, not just for the church. It creates a challenge for humanity. Why do we exist? Why are we here? And if you only answer, oh, you're a sinner, you must get saved, it will help them in a moment, but it won't give them any existential clarity. John Tyson puts it this way, and you're a sinner and you need to get saved, but it gets really good when you're dead. That's the idea of fundamentalism. So the worldview that you and I must have as followers of Jesus must involve creation, fall and redemption, and the restoration of all things. My dream is that we would recapture the whole story. That our lives, individually and as a community, we would recapture this. 
this reality of creation, fall, redemption, and the restoration of all things. So this brings up a whole nother set of questions. Why church? There has not been one organization, institution that had been attacked more than the church. The Bible had been one of the most sought after books to destroy in all of human history, and it fails every time. What's amazing to me is that what our faith has not just endured in dictators, in tyrannies, and crazy men and women throughout human history, it endured horrible theology. That's remarkable. That our faith has endured so much bad theology, more people are giving their life to Jesus today than ever before, even in the midst of horrible theology. So we have to ask some questions. There's a low-resolution view of the church, and then there's a high-resolution view of the church. The low-resolution view, we've already covered, it's, it's getting to heaven. That's basic, low-resolution, like low-definition, low-resolution, it's just getting to heaven. But there's actually a high-resolution view of the church that incorporates the entire story. A man named Chris Gansky, he said this regarding the church. The church is not an institution with a mission, but it's a mission with an institution. This is different because every company and organization that you go into now, they come up with a mission statement. That's not how the church functioned. God had a mission and he created the church. This is the big difference. So our mission as a church is Jesus. So we're not trying to conjure up what's the mission? What should we be doing with our time? What, well, how do we keep people motivated? No, the mission is clear. Creation, fall, redemption, and the restoration of all things. Here's the part that I want to make known to you. If when Jesus started the inauguration of the restoration of all things, that is our main focus and emphasis as followers of Jesus, is seeing heaven. So here's the question. Is heaven a parallel reality? Is it another dimension? Is it far away? Is it near? We find Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea is it's within reach. So the whole concept of heaven, if you think it's out there somewhere, I have news for you. No one knows where it is, but one thing we do know is for now, it's not for just later. So the church, the church wasn't created and then God came up with a mission statement. God had a mission, and then he created the church. Irwin says it this way, the church is the language of God. I'm going to start landing this plane. Our mission isn't just worship upward. It's not that or mission outward. It's actually both. Have you ever wondered why Jesus ascended into heaven? I mean, it's, it's probably fairly clear. It's like... That's where you should go. If you're, if you're going to have rulership and dominion over everything in existence, that's where you have to go. So, for example, if Jesus would have rose to a throne on earth, because the desire of the Jewish people when Jesus walked the earth was, when are you going to sit on that throne that Caesar is currently sitting on? And when are you going to restore Israel back to its rightful place? Now, Jesus could have done that. The only challenge, though, Jesus would have been at war with all the other kings on earth. 
He would have been at war with every idea, every worldview, every idea of dominion. He would have been at war with anything on an earthly level. So he ascended to heaven so he could actually be higher than all of these dominions. So our faith, stay with me just for a couple minutes, our faith is in the reality that it's in the ascended Jesus, not just the earthly Jesus. So every promise that you have on your life personally, every promise that we have for our city of Greenville, Greer, Taylors, and the list goes on, the Greenville area, every promise that heaven has for, it's actually you and I get to participate in seeing that happen here and now, and that all things would be restored. You can only change culture outside of you if that culture exists in you. Some of us are trying to change the world around us, but that reality doesn't actually live in you. Okay, I need to end this. We're going to continue some of this, I believe, in the following weeks. I believe we're heading to a wedding and not a divorce. So what are the takeaways today? Do you want a low-resolution view of your faith, of church, or religion? Or do you want a high-resolution view of your faith, church, and or religion? Why don't you stand? Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.